there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. We appreciate that there's a lot of species diversity. And so they're kind of like, oh, there's more than one bee. And then they get freaked out on the other end of it because it's like, oh, there's more than one. How would I ever possibly know any of them? And so one thing that I do, particularly with people here in Oregon, is I, I, you know, when we do master gardener training, I introduce them to five bees that you can find anywhere in the United States and Canada. And that, that I, I guess the, the way that I usually approach this is like, when you try to garden for bees, it's complicated because there are all sorts of different bees and there's all sorts of, and a lot of the plant lists are flaky. You know, people say, oh, I saw a bee on it. And actually it, it's not very good. So people have to develop their own observational skills. They have to be able to see. And so they got to be able, if you, if you could learn these five bees, that gets you well on your way to being able to pay attention, walk through a neighbor's garden and say, oh, that bee, okay. This plant is attracting that bee. It helps people figure that part out because there's no uh, there's no magic list out there that's going to help you. Like there are lots of plant lists, but there's not one that's um, there's not enough research to kind of like anchor a lot of those observations down. So people have to do it themselves. So I can I can get people to the five bees. We can talk about those five bees, and then I've got ten tips, ten tips that they can people can put you know put to use in their garden tomorrow uh to kind of get a pollinate you know refurbish their existing garden and get a pollinator habitat going awesome this is they're gonna love this yeah well, it'll be perfect five bees ten plant tips cool okay are you ready so i always tell my guests i don't know about on your show but um, it's super easy for me to edit. I do a lot of editing. So like if you want to change something or think about something or get a drink or let the dog out, like don't hesitate to put me on hold. God, I and never I tell everybody, if you make me edit, I will kill you. <laughs> you <do? laughs> You're so nice. <laughs> oh, I'm going to spend hours doing it anyway. So, and I just, uh, a lot of my guests are nervous and like, I, you know, I talk to a lot of backyard gardeners that aren't professional speakers or people that are used to, I just like to put everybody at ease. And as you can see, my phone goes off in the middle <laughs> and just, um, yeah, my show's very much more laid back at least. So, um, all right. Okay. And just let me make sure I know how to say your name. Yeah. So it's it, Andony yeah. Melithopoulos. That's perfect. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'll introduce you and we'll go from there. Yeah. Where are you also? You're in... I'm like... in Montana. Oh, you are? I thought you were in Canada somewhere. Okay. Well, we're like close, seven miles from the border or something like that. Oh, okay. I was yeah. in Lethbridge for a long time, so... Oh, yeah. I, I think that's like directly north of us, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're on this side of the... Just like on west of the Rocky Mountains. Okay. Like Glacier uh... National Park. Ooh, that's part of the world. Yeah. My unintentional claim to fame is crossing the continental divide 400 times because I taught on the east side and I would go back and forth every weekend. Ooh. Wow. It was a beautiful drive. I bet. A little hairy in the winter sometimes, but um, <laughs> yeah, definitely gorgeous. So I, yeah, I've had a weird life. <laughs> pretty amazing, pretty <laughs> challenging, um, always an adventure. So, okay, here we go. Um, Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast today. I am super excited because for Earth Week, it's April 25th, 2019. And from the Pollination Podcast, 
I have Dr. Anthony Melithopoulos on the line, um, and he's the assistant professor for pollinator health extension at Oregon State University. So here to talk to us about bees and recognizing bees and 10 tips to use in your garden tomorrow is um, Dr. Melithopoulos. Welcome hey. to the show. How you doing? <laughs> I, I'm super. I'm sorry. I totally, I'll fix that. See, I'm already editing my own thing. But anyway, go ahead and tell listeners about yourself. Oh yeah. No, I'm in beautiful Oregon. I'm so sorry for all your listeners who aren't here. It's gorgeous outside. I'm at the Oregon State University campus. I'm looking out the window. The hawthorns are just starting to come into bloom. Ceanothus, the uh, California lilac is blooming. It's nice here <laughs> on Earth Day. <laughs> It's a beautiful day here in Montana, too. Okay, Earth I'm Day was actually on Monday, but it's still Earth Week. And uh, it's just a great episode to be sharing. So, totally. Uh, tell us, tell, well, I actually always start my show asking about, like, did you have, a, like, what was your very first natural experience, maybe, or gardening experience? Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Like, how did you fall in love with um, horticulture? Oh, I, I think um, I was a uh, an urban kid, so I didn't. I remember I come from a Greek immigrant family. I remember my aunts and uncles having like great tomatoes and and going to Greece and just having uh, the produce there that just tastes so wonderful. Um, but I I remember starting to do it myself uh, in my late twenties in the most northern part of Canada, the northern agricultural area of Canada, the Peace River District, where we would get a killing frost that would kill the tops of the potatoes August 1st. It was a hard place. You grew a lot of kale. <laughs> uh, where, so where is that? Like the, like the northernest part? Is that like over by Nova Scotia somewhere or like up by the Yukon or where is that at? It's mile zero of the Alaska Highway for people who've been on the, the Alaska oh. Highway. So it is the most northern agricultural, serious agricultural area in North America. And it they grow. It's great. The one thing that's lovely up there is when they hit uh, solstice, it's, you know, the sun just dips down, you know, for a few hours at 3 a.m. And then it pops up again. So you get this really long, you get this exceedingly quick and rapid growing season. It's amazing. But the downside is, uh, you, you know, you're 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 dodging the frost. I remember once having the audacity to try and grow eggplants, and they grew the size of a marble, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, what could you grow up there besides kale? Then, could you grow potatoes? Yeah, the potatoes were good. I mean, the you, the, you know, I was in a frost pocket, so you'd have to sort of mound them up and you know, hope for the best. But you know, other people would have. Uh, there was there was a. I was working at the Agriculture Canada Research Station, and actually it started because it was so far from anywhere, and the kind of uh, idea up there was to make people self-sufficient. And so there were all sorts of like prairie, uh, northern climate, fruit uh, uh, fruit trees. So there were hascups, there was a apple orchard there. Um, you know, it it, it it has these, it, you have to adapt your gardening for it. It's tricky, but there is ways to get around things. And people were always pushing the envelope on what you could grow up there. And so for me as a beginning gardener, I stuck to the fundamentals and didn't try to, you know, stray too far, you know, did great garlic up there, but I didn't try to do, you know, you know, tomatoes to me were uh, hit and miss cherry tomatoes, maybe, but, you know, doing real tomatoes was just, you know, beyond my pay grade at the time. <laughs> 
that's beyond my pay grade too. I stick to cherry tomatoes here in Montana. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, well, so then, so tell us about the bees. You were going to tell okay. us about there's five different bees that um, listeners will find in their neighborhood. Yeah. I, so this is how I always started off. Whenever I talk to gardeners, I say, the first thing is like, you're always confronted with these plant lists and you can go anywhere on the internet and just like pollinators and plants and they spit out these lists. And the problem with those lists is that, um, they're okay. And there's some good plants on them, but they really don't, uh, as I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of bees. There are not just honeybees. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, honeybees. And then some people will lump like the yellow jackets, like I get calls all the time. It's like, I've got bees in my yard and they're actually yellow jackets or hornets. It's a different group altogether. Honeybee, uh, the bees and the wasps are closely related, but they're not the same thing. Uh, thing with bees, the way you can always tell a bee is if it's carrying pollen on its body, it's a bee. Now, not all bees do. Males don't carry pollen. There's some bees that don't carry pollen. I was going to ask that. But if you see a lump of pollen on a, on a insect flying through the air, it's a bee. And that's because bees depend in their protein entirely comes from pollen. They're vegetarians and no other, there's no other insect that just kind of relies on pollen and nectar for its life. And so, uh, bees are, a, you know, way back used to be wasps, but they really took this radical turn towards the flowers and they're really deeply invested in the flowers. And so when, so people are like, okay, oh, okay. Yellow jackets and hornets are not bees. And then it's like, Okay, so what's a bee? And then you start to dig a little bit. It's, oh, there are honeybees. And then there's, oh, there's bumblebees. And then there's mason bees. You had a great episode on mason bees. Huh. Um, but then there's like in the Pacific Northwest, we have upward of 800 species of bees. Little guys, little things. If you, if you go on your goldenrod in the Pacific Northwest, you'll see these little specks with a little white dot on their face. These are Haleas. They're cellophane bees. Haleas is the genus. Mm-hmm. And you'd never think they were bees. You'd like, they're so small. How could they be bees? But I guarantee you go to your goldenrod in the, in the late summer and you'll see these little critters going from flower to flower. Those are bees. So it's intimidating. So coming back to the flower list, it's like not all those bees go to the same flowers are coming out at different times of year. And so just getting a plant list ain't going to cut it. You're going to need to pay attention to the bees in your backyard. And I can give you today special <laughs> five bees that anybody can see in their backyard. I can, I can, I can walk people through these five bees. And once you see those five bees, then you can start to poke around in your neighbor and say, Oh, this bee is on that flower and start to fill out your garden with plants that are really specific to your area that grow in your area. that don't have pest problems in your area that are grow that are available. The nurseries or, uh, um, local seed growers are growing them and really come up with something that works. I, I'm, I'm a sort of anti-plant uh, list. Kind of awesome. Guy. Well, so then is this, is that including that itty bitty teeny tiny one that we can't really see or five other? Bees? Five. Other, okay. So five. Other, so I give you oh, six. Wow. I gave cool. you a bonus just for you. <laughs> uh, I feel so special. Okay. Well, so let's hear them, I guess. Or how does this start? Okay, so the way I would start is I would say, first of all, there's some confusing things out there because lots of people want to trade on the bee brand. Lots of people, lots of insects. So the wasps look kind of bee-like, and sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. And the other thing is the flies. So you have these beneficial flies in your garden. Um, 
there's a, a number of genera that look kind of like bees. And the way to tell them apart is look at their heads and their legs. So bees have chunky back legs. It's Usually it's where they're carrying their pollen. The females do. Uh, not always. Some of the some of them carry it on their bellies. But they got chunky back legs. And if you look at their heads, they got branched antenna. Like they got an elbowed antenna that kind of sticks out away. Flies have a nubby antenna. It's called an arista. It's tiny. And their head is almost entirely eyeballs. So if you look at a fly... It's really eyeball-y. And if you see a fly that's kind of looks bee-like, usually their abdomen, the back part, is like thin like a ribbon. They're not big and full. And the last thing is a lot of the flies hover. Hover flies, the surfids, for example, that are great biocontrol for aphids. Every organic gardener should be watching for these because it's a real sign that, you know, maybe aphid populations are popping up because these guys are, you know, aphid devourers. Their larvae are. They'll hover. Bees don't hover. They dart around. So... Wasps, and so just keep that in mind. There's a couple things that look like them, and flies and uh, wasps are kind of close. But here's five that you can tell for sure. First one is a honeybee. Now, honeybees, everybody knows, are these, they're kind of iconic. They've got a kind of, le- they're not yellow and black like a wasp. They're kind of a leathery brown to gray color. They're striped on the back, but it's kind of their light part is leathery brown to kind of gray. And um, they're real... Um, like the bumblebees are second bee that everybody sh- should be able to pull out. These two bees are pretty easy. They carry pollen in a little basket. So the females have a spoon on their back leg and they pack the pollen. So it looks like a little lentil in their back leg. Only bumblebees and honeybees do this. And you can totally pull mm-hmm. the part for that. So the bumblebees, obviously everybody knows the bumblebees. They're really fuzzy and um, the only thing you can get confused with as you go south in the U.S. and into in eastern Canada are carpenter bees. They look a little bit similar. We're not going to talk about carpenter bees today. But the difference is, the real clear difference is that the bumblebees are going to carry this pollen in this little lentil-shaped pellet on their back legs. Got it? So got two bees, both carrying pollen in lentil, little lentil-shaped pellets on their back legs. Bumblebees, of course, big and furry. They're hard to mistake from anything else except for, in some places, carpenter bees look a lot like them. And there you go. Two bees. Your listeners got two bees now. There, the honeybees, there's one species that came from Europe. And bumblebees, there can be up to, in Oregon, we have, a, you know, close to 30 different species. they got different color patterns. But all of them are going to have this kind of um, carrying pollen in their back legs, except for a few that we're not going to talk about. So I just have a quick question about the flies. Yeah. So sure. you want the flies or if you see the flies, that means you're getting aphids and you should be concerned or the flies are going to eat the aphids and they're, it's a good thing that you want to attract the flies. Great question. I think the flies, you'll notice the flies are, the adult flies are not the aphid controllers. It's the larva. And so... The same flowers, a lot of the same flowers that attract the bees are going to feed those ap- those adults. So they need to you know, to find those aphids. they got to run off nectar. So they're going to your flowers, they're nectaring, and they're looking for aphids. If you start to see them pop up in densities, check the plants out because you may see some aphids up and down them. And I think they're really good. There's a lot of really good aphids. I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a pest management expert, but there are a lot of good aphid-controlling insects. It's one of the easiest things to control organically 
with natural predators. And so oftentimes you have aphids. And if you just wait a little bit, you know, it's, these guys are going to find them and they're going to lay eggs and those larvae are going to come up and they're just going to hoover them up like Pac-Man. They're just going to eat aphids like nuts. So um, they're good. And any of the garden tips I give you today are going to definitely, these guys are really generalist. They'll go to any kind of shallow, shallow flower to nectar there. And uh, when you see them, just check the plants out. If they're hovering around something, you know, you may look at the plants like, oh, my God, look at all those aphids. Anyways, they're going to take care of it, though. That's why they're there. They're good. Okay, good. That explains it a lot better. Okay, so we've got honeybees. We've got bumblebees. What's next? Okay, so the next kind of bee I'm going to tell you about, you talked about in a previous episode, um, it's a big group. It's a family of bees, but they're all uniform. Remember I told you the honeybees carry their pollen in a little pellet on their back legs. Mm-hmm. These bees do something different. They pack... I keep picturing bee movie. <laughs> oh, I know. Bee movie is really great. I, I love it. that the pollen jocks. Jer- yeah. Jer- Jerry Seinfeld had one thing. He said, I've finished Seinfeld. I got one project I want to do. And it was the bee movie. I was like, yes. <laughs> and then it's funny because like, so my husband and I got bees and like, because of that movie, then when I'm down there and I'm watching them, I'm like, Oh look, there's some pollen jocks. And then I video our bee, but we have really struggled to keep our honeybees alive. I think it's because my neighbors spray pesticides. We're not really sure. Honeybees are tricky. So the one, let's just take a yeah. quick a quick detour because I think a lot of people are like, oh, save the bees. I'm going to get honeybees. And I think honeybees are great. There's, It's like any kind of gardening. Honeybees have this rich history. There's so many things you can do with them. You can do cut comb honey. You can, you know... Um, you can rear queens, you can divide them. There's, it's, there's all sorts of tools. People have been, um, we had a great episode with Kim Flottam from bee culture and he just talked about the history of beekeeping. And whenever you get into beekeeping, you sort of tap into this long history of people keeping bees and it's, it's amazing, but there is, it is a tricky business, especially these days because of, as you mentioned, there's pesticide use, but more you know, I think with a lot of people, we have a survey here in the Pacific Northwest where we ask beekeeper, beginning beekeepers, why their bees don't turn out. And invariably, they don't feed them enough. Like almost every, you know, 80% of the situations, the colonies run out of food. And so there's these basic, so Kim had this really great thing. So Kim started a magazine called Beekeeping in Your First Three Years. And he said he did it because oftentimes it takes you three years to kind of really get it down. If you think you're going to watch some YouTube videos, order a package of bees and be off, you're in for a surprise. It really does require mentorship. It is tricky to kind of get up and running. And then when you get up, you can't have these problems that happen. Um, uh, a neighbor who sprays pesticide that just sets everything back. But it does require like any gardening. It has you need a strong skill set to pull it off. It's not something you can just, um, so my sense, I always worry because there's a lot of people getting into bees for conservation purposes. I think, eh, maybe not the, you know, there's, I'm going to try and convince you that by gardening and bringing these other bees, uh, creating a rich habitat in your garden, you're doing probably more, but I don't want to dissuade anybody from beekeeping. It is such a pleasure. You must really enjoy, you know, watching the bees come in and out their social behavior is just amazing. There's no equal amongst, you know, we were talking about bumblebees, right? Mm-hmm. They have these little, they're, most of the bees are solitary. The group we're going to talk about, there's no queen. There's no, you know, there's a little nest, not very big. And there's no nest mates. It's one female doing all the work. 
It's way, way different. So when you're used to honeybees, you're like, oh, I know about bees. And it's like, no, 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 no. All the rest of the bees are so different in the way that they live. It's just um, you almost have to like, you know, re, re, uh, recalibrate and sort of refocus because they're doing things. They're all at flowers collecting pollen. But that's where the similarity ends. So I'm kind of, did you say like, if we learn about these other, like, cause that interview I did with the rent Mason bees, like we're just getting ready. Cause I think they do their second, like it's been too cold here. So I was going to get into her second batch that they send out. Like yeah. if we get some of those, do you think that we'll have more success with the honeybees? We want to have bees for the honey because my husband, yeah. we just like honey, but out there in Montana, I, I'm I'm an Albertan, as uh, mm-hmm. my listeners know, and I, I I'll probably get you know run out of state, but I do think that you know Montana and Alberta honey is some of the nicest honey on the planet. It's so mild and so it smells like cinnamon. I mean, I totally get it. <laughs> Getting fresh honey out of the comb and being able to put it on toast is you know a delight that you know that has no equal. <laughs> And it's super healthy for you. Like it helps with your immune system, I think. And it's a great way to get like some natural sugar if you like to use sugar and just, uh, my husband's a big baker. So, uh, he wanted it for that too. And just like, you know, I think there's like people that say like a teaspoon of honey a day is really good for you. Especially for baking too. This it, it's uh, it's not like sugar. It's a lot easier to uh, work with. You've got that moisture in there as well. The flavor and just the aroma. Like there's something you know, I I I you know I eat sugar. I admit, and like, but it's just kind of like okay, it just sweetened it. But with honey, it's just like you get you get walloped with these smells, with these textures. It's just like you're really kind of it's. I I think it's like one of the most remarkable things around, and that. It requires no processing. Like, what does a beekeeper do? They take the wax off, they spin it out, they use heat to separate out the wax, and then they put it in a bottle. I mean, it's pretty simple stuff. <laughs> well, you make it sound a little simpler than... I don't know. I mean, so the first year that we had them, um, that honey we had, I think we just used up our last uh, pint of it, like, last year. And we... When did we first get those bees? I can't remember. It was a few years ago that we got the hives. But we've had, um, they just swarmed and left and we haven't been able to get them back. And then last year the swarm came and I was like, we're both excited and thought they were going to move into one of the boxes, but they didn't. Yes, it is. So that, like, that's the whole trick of it. Like the trick to beekeeping, there's one trick to beekeeping and it, it has multiple ways to do it. The trick is you want the maximal amount of bees when the honey flow hits. Like for you, it'll be the clovers. When the clovers are in full bloom, you want your colony at maximal population, and then you're going to make a lot of honey. And out there, you're looking at, you know, it can be like 150 pounds per colony. Like that's the kind of averages they get on the Great Plains. But to do that, you have to do all of this work on the front end. That colony can't swarm. You're going to have to really manage the populations. It's got to be like... It's a real trick. It's just like growing anything. It's like if you want to get, you know, um, you know, uh, a really good potato crop, you've got all of these things that you're going to have to do before, you know, the tubers even set. And if you don't do those things, it doesn't matter what you do, you're still going to get hit. And so with a, with honeybees, it's like from the start of the season until that flow, your focus is keeping the colony in motion and moving 
never having it come offline because a queen goes or something and just hitting that peak. If you do that, you'll get 150 pounds. But if, if anything goes wrong and there's so many things that can go wrong, then you're not. And that's, um, that is the trick. <laughs> it's a tricky business. It's very tricky <laughs> and it's expensive too. We've spent a small fortune on the bees that we've gotten. So I'm excited to learn more and, um, Okay, so we're back. So we're back at these bees. So we, okay, I think perfect. we had Olivia from uh, Rhett Mason Bees on the on the show, and mm-hmm. she told you about this next group of bees. So we've got bumblebees and honeybees, and both of them make wax. All the rest of these bees I'm going to tell you about don't make wax. Those are the only two that do. This next group, they're called the big-lipped bees or the megachylidae. That's the family. For If you want to go to a cocktail party and just say that, oh, the megachylidae are my property. <laughs> it will impress people a lot. But you don't have to say that. They're just the big lippies. There's about, um, I think in Oregon, we have about 100 species in this group. And they're all distinctive because the females don't carry the pollen on their back legs at all. They carry it on their belly. So you see a female and she's got, you, you look under her belly and it's full of pollen. It's because there are these dense hairs like Velcro on her belly and she sticks the pollen to it. And that gives this really unique, the whole family, it's the only family that's got pollen on its belly. It's really distinctive. And this includes the mason bees who don't make their nest out of wax. They make it out of mud. They're going to collect mud. There are resin bees in this group that collect, make their nests out of resin. There, there are leaf cutting bees that will either, you know, use cut pieces of leaf uh, to make their nest. Um, there are wool carter bees. We have this introduced bee from Europe that you'll see it on lamb's ear. I don't know if you have them in Montana, but in the Pacific Northwest for sure, and in California, they'll shave the hairs off the lamb's. You'll see the males patrolling the lamb's ear, and they'll uh, they'll headbutt any bee that comes there except for a female, which uh, he'll let in and you know copulate with. But the females will shave the hairs off and make a wool nest. So they, you know, same thing. They're all going into little tubes. So naturally they're looking for twigs with a little hollow in them and they're flying in. They're putting their mud, their leaf, their wool, their resin. And what they do is they don't make honey at all. None of these bees make honey. They take the pollen and they roll it up into a little ball. They put a little nectar on it. They lay an egg on it. They wrap it up with leaf or mud or resin and then they go away. No child care at all. It's like the best system. <laughs> they just leave. And so they never see their offspring. They go off, they die, and then there's some twig, like a raspberry cane in your garden or some of these houses that you can build out of wood, and they'll uh, develop, and then they'll go through the winter, and the next spring they pop out again. So they're uh, in your garden right now. They're nesting somewhere in your garden. Like you don't even know where they are. They're somewhere all around. And then suddenly when your flowers come out, they're going to come out. So this is the next group of bees. And they all are solitary, no colony. They nest above ground. And remember, you're looking for bees with pollen on their belly. Who will be number three? All bees, I guess. Awesome. And what do you call them? The lift... uh... The got, lip, big okay. lip bees? Big lip. So the lip, it's because all of them, uh, their truck and trade is using these weird materials. So they're cut, either using these, the lip means they're mandibles, which is kind of like the equivalent of a tooth in an insect. And what they're using it for is like they're, they're cutting a little bit of leaf, 
with this tooth or they're using it to dig up mud or they're using it to scrape up resin. So they've got these mandibles. They look kind of like mean when you look at them. It's like, no, they're not mean. They're real gentle. Like they never sting you. Now, all these bees, like a mason bee, for example, you can put them in places where the kids are. And the only way they're going to get stung is if they pick it up, they put it in their nostril and they shut it. <laughs> it's just not going to get this is not like a honeybee colony where you can get stung. These are really gentle bees. And so they look mean, though, because they got these big mandibles. But those mandibles are meant to kind of like, you know, it's kind of like their little craft tools. It's like, oh, this is my a little hatchet for, you know, uh, sh you know, shaving, shaving off uh, hairs off of lamb's ear uh, uh, leaves. Like, so they've got the, they're all big lipped. Like it's like it's kind of I don't know. I don't know who came up with these terms, but it's kind of like it's kind of like big jawed. Let's call them the big jawed bees. But they're really the other the other term I've heard for them is the pollen belly bees. because They carry pollen on their bellies. Pollen belly bees. We got honeybees, bumblebees pollen belly bees you guys now have three bees that you can identify uh flying through your garden this is so fascinating i know my listeners are totally excited to hear the other two types of bees and then the 10 tips for how we can get these in our because one of the biggest takeaways i took from olivia was that um mason bees and so like are all these bees like she said they were such better pollinators they'll make so many more blooms in your garden um, and like, I think she would like the leaf cutter bees are the ones that we're going to get because we're ordering later in the season. Um, oh, but she's told is, is that right? That they're all, all the bees in this group are going to be better pollinators or is that just mason bees? No, no, not. So it's not entirely true, but it's totally true at the same time. Uh, so bumblebees, for example, will be the only things that will pollinate your tomatoes. So they're the so tomatoes and blueberries both have the you know how if you look at a sunflower the pollen or a dandelion the pollen is like right there you just have to land on it and pick it up. In uh -huh. tomatoes and blueberries it's in a tube. It's like in a salt shaker. You got to shake it out if you're going to get the pollen out. And so a honeybee that goes to a blueberry uh, or a tomato plant is just not going to get any pollen out of it. You need a bee that's going to hold on to the flower and then buzz it. So bumblebees are really good at that, and they will pollinate. Uh, they'll poll you know, for tomatoes, bumblebees are will set your tomatoes or your eggplant or whatever. Uh, other plants, like anything, can pollinate them. Like you just need a broad range of insects to get in there. Like strawberries, for example. But some bees don't like to go to strawberries. Strawberries are an example of a fruit that will set on its own. So with a little bit of wind, because um, if you look at a strawberry plant, they've got like you know. Um, they got to move the pollen from the edge to the center to get a full, and sometimes the little knocking will do it, but any, if bees visit that flower, it really sets a good strawberry. And so there's a, a range of them, uh, like that. And then, you know, things like zucchinis, which I'm sure nobody has any trouble setting, <laughs> but there are some bees, it, there are squash bees in some parts of the, uh, your listeners will have them. We don't have them here in Oregon. But there are these bees that are just the best squash pollinators ever, and they are uh, really, really effective. Honeybees will pollinate a squash, but nothing like a squash bee. So Olivia is totally right. But there are some bees like there are some bees that remember. I, okay, that, but wait, can I just back up really quickly? Hey, because, hey. see, this was my takeaway from Olivia. Maybe I misunderstood it, but I kind of got the impression that having the mason bees was going to make my flowers bloom more. And by having more flowers blooming, I was going to attract more bumblebees and other bees in general. Uh, 
he had with some, I, I'm not sure. I have to go back and listen to the episode. Maybe not. But... Me too, because now that I think about it, I guess she did talk about them down in almond trees and different trees. So anyway, okay. Well, let's go on to. So we've got bumblebees, honeybees, lip bees. Big yeah, the big lip or pollen belly bees, and then we've got there's a bee that you'll see in your yard. Um, the males are all distinctive. If you see this, it's a uh, there's a, in Oregon we have I don't know maybe. I think about eight species of these. We have them right across the U.S. and Canada. It's a green bee, like an emerald green bee. It looks like St. Patrick's Day. But the front part's green, but the back end is striped, yellow and black or gray and black. You see that bee, you've got a metallic sweat bee. So um, all the males in this uh, group have this stripy back end and they have this green front end. So the females can be all, will be mostly are all green. But the thing about them is they carry the pollen, and this is like most of the bees, carry the pollen on their back legs, but they don't have a little spoon like honeybees and bumblebees. They're not a little pellet on their back leg. It's just like a pollen stuck all the way up their leg. It looks like they've got pollen in their armpit, so to speak. And so um, these bees are like – so that you can spot these. These are identifiable. They're delightful. If you have things like mycomastases out here in uh, Pacific Northwest, you'll see them – uh, they're already out. They're all here all year long. They're a uh, really great, beautiful bee. And um, the thing about them is that they have the life cycle of most bees. So most bees uh, live like this. They come, they find a piece of dirt, they dig a hole in the ground like a gopher. Down there, they make a little chamber where they put their little po ball of pollen, they lay an egg, and they're done. So they'll make underground. You barely see them. They're like very inconspicuous. When I say underground, people are like, oh, wasps. Like, I, you know, you find a wasp hole. There'd be wasps coming in and out of it. No, no, no. It's one female goes in the hole and then you barely see her because she's like, she pops out and then she's gone for 10 minutes. So you don't see any activity. They're very hard to spot, but you're, they're all over your garden and they're, they're going in there and they live like that. And we have hundreds of species of bees, including these green ones that do that. There so you go. do you think people are seeing them and we just don't know what they are? Yeah, this is the thing. After this episode, I challenge everybody to start looking for these five bees. You'll spot them. And then you're like, oh, they were here all along. It's almost like, I don't know, it's, it's like anything in a garden. It's so complex. You've got so many things going on and you're focusing on things and you miss stuff. And like I think as soon as you start to look, you're going to see, oh, my, there's a lot of activity in here. And that gets to your question of like, do they all pollinate? And some of them are not that great of pollinators and some of them don't even pollinate at all. They kind of rob the nectar and they don't pollinate. But I think what you should do is think about these things. If you can look at this thing and you think about its life cycle, you'll get an appreciation for it. People, uh, you know, garden for butterflies and they don't ask the question, is it going to pollinate my garden? It's just like, Oh no, butterflies are amazing. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Uh, Worse, I'm going to put some plants out to support them because I just love them. I want people to start to think about that with the bees. We have all of these bees. They're so fascinating. And by doing just a few things, you can attract them. And even if they're, you know, mason bees are really good pollinators. They're just super pollinators. They just go to work. Uh, you can, you can uh, even though they're native, you can get cocoons. You can get them in high numbers. You can pollinate your back. But some of these other ones may not do that much work. I'm going to just say... Who cares? They're just so cool. That's my that's my soapbox. I love that. <laughs>
All right, last bee. Well, last bee here. Sure. This bee is, 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 if you have sunflowers in the end of the year, you'll see this bee for sure. They're, uh, they're called longhorn bees. They go to some, they love sunflowers. They're really particular to sunflowers. And what's noticeable about them is the antenna, the front part is so long on the males. It's almost the length of their bodies. They look, you know, you've seen longhorn beetles with these big, long antenna. These guys are the same way. So if you see, look at your sunflowers this summer and you'll see these bees with just ridiculously long antenna. The females don't have the long antenna, but they have... You know, I told you they got Velcro. A lot of these bees have Velcro on their back legs. Mm -hmm. The Velcro is so pronounced. It looks like they have chaps. So they're kind of Texan bees. They, they, they got long horns and chaps. Totally, totally Montana. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've learned a lot about rodeo here. You can make a cute little video, like a, a bee movie about these guys, the Texas longhorn bees. That is a On the idea. sunflowers, I totally want to make an animated movie someday. I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'll uh, si sign me on to your Patreon account. <laughs> well, let's go fund me. I want to see this. <laughs> to make a new bee movie about Texas Longhorn or Montana Longhorn bees. Definitely, we got. We should once we're done this podcast, we should give Jerry Seinfeld a call. Tell him we got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the sequel. The sequel, <laughs> the native beats. And we could do it like, you know how like all the movies are coming out in reverse? So we'll have like a female hero this time. Oh, that's right. You know how like they did Overboard Over? Like I've been working on like rewriting You've Got Mail, but like with the opposite, like the, the guy's the little store and she's like the big, I can't decide if it's either going to be like Amazon coming in and he's like Whole Foods because you know how Amazon bought out Whole Foods or the other one that seems to be like a little more personal to me is that Rodale's got bought out by Hearst publishing. And that just, I don't know. I just can't wrap my head around that. Like, you know, Rodale's used to be organic gardening magazine. And then, um, although that's gone all together now, like there's not even organic life. And, um, but that oh. Hearst is now publishing like prevention magazine and runner's world and bicycling, you know, and women's health and men's health. And I don't know. Well, I will say one thing about I'm I'm gonna just stand back from all that because but I will say you know the one thing about the Seinfeld movie that's a little misleading is that actually all the workers in a honeybee colony and all the bees that do work are females. So it was a little bit you know I was I, I had to sort of bite my tongue. I I'm a big Seinfeld fan from way back, so I was just like okay I don't care this is this is this is Hollywood I totally get it. But you so you certainly, if you really wanted to make that movie kind of like just a little, it would have been a whole female cast. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, we should definitely write out to him uh, and see what he says. So, okay, so now we have all five B. Did we get to the last one? We the did. Longhorn B. So, Longhorn and now are we going to do the 10 tips people can use to find them in their neighborhood? 10 tips. This is what you can do in your garden. Okay. So like, oh, yeah. how do you do this? So I, we had a podcast with a guy by the name of Al Shea, who's the landscape. He, he's a, an amazing landscape uh, instructor here at OSU. And he had this great piece of advice. He said, the problem is, is that people, when they hear about pollinator gardens, uh, they, they want to do this huge project and it kind of fails. And he said, what you need to do is do like a square foot or something small and modest and then watch it and learn from it. And I think now you, you, you all have, can pick out these five Bs. You can sort of see if they're coming or not coming. 
and you've got that search image, the next thing is like 10 principles. I'm going to give you 10 principles about how to refurbish your garden so you get more of these bees coming. And so the general principle, this is the general thing, is that what bees need more than anything is they need a place to make a nest. All these bees, unlike the butterflies, which kind of go all across the landscape, a bee sets down a nest and then builds it. And then from that nest, if it's a twig or it's in a hole in the ground, it's going to need to have food that's within reach for its entire lifespan or when it comes to something like a bumblebee, which forms a colony, for the entire lifespan of that colony. If, they, if the flowers disappear for a couple weeks, it's going to hit them. And so that's the trick. If you can pull all that off, you're going to do it. And it has to be the right kind of flower. Which brings me to principle number one, is you need a, a wide array of flowering plants. So that the thing is, is not all flowers are the same some have like little bell-shaped flowers. Some have complicated flowers like a penstemon. Some are like a sunflower. Any bee can get into it. You need a, a, a lot of different flower shapes. So when you're planting, think about planting across different families of plants and having different, you know, flowers like a manzanita with a bell-shaped flower. Get a variety of flower shapes. People have shown that the different bees are attracted really strongly to different flower shapes. And if you have a lot of different flower shapes in your garden, you're going to get the broadest range of bees. And like, uh, here's an example. I'll just tell you, like one thing that we have people plant often in, orna as in, in ornamental gardens is they'll put Rebecca, uh, black eyed Susans next to Russian sage. They bloom at about the same time. And I challenge you to do this. Look, look at it closely. Now you've got this, these powers of observation. You'll notice the honeybees and the bumblebees will be entirely on the Russian sage. It's a more complex flower, has a longer corolla. Those bees have very long tongues. They're almost exclusively on the Russian sage. And just a meter away, you'll go to the black-eyed Susan and all the rest of the bees, the short-tongued bees, the re you know, remainder of the bees will all be on the black-eyed Susan. If you only had black-eyed Susan or you only had Russian sage, you would exclude a bunch of different bees. So lots of flower shapes. Wow, that's so interesting. I, if somebody's mentioned that on my show, I, I don't remember it. I'm up to like your episode, I think, 295. So things are starting like, and plus it's like been spread out over a longer period of time. So I'm struggling more to remember everything. But uh, awesome. I planted Black-Eyed Susans last year next to my lavender, which some looks like it might have made it. Some of it, I think it didn't make it. But um, And then oh. they're right by my echinaceas. So that's kind of some different shapes. No, 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 no. The lavender is going to, lavender is going to be exclusively honeybees and bumblebees. You'll see nothing else on it. But you'll see on the black-eyed Susan, you have all these different bees. And, in, uh, um, and the same with the echinacea. There'll be different bees on those flowers. Uh, sometimes you see bumblebees going to echinaceas, but you'll see that the lavender is just really two bee species. And the other ones will have others. So it's an excellent example of how this works. And what about irises? Actually, there's some irises there. Do any bees even go to irises? They're so big. Yeah, no, irises aren't a great uh, bee plant. Although I heard I had a guest on once who talked about uh, he talked about uh, daffodils because they're not pollinator plants. But he said in back in Holland or back in Europe there are wild daffodils, and the way they're designed is they're a fly pollinator, and that long tube is kind of like a greenhouse. So the it, you know they bloom really early, and so 
the insect kind of gets into the little greenhouse, warms up. It's like, whew, and then pollinates and then, you know, goes out into the cold again. <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> but yeah, no, t it, you know, a lot of those plants are just not great. You'll, you'll notice now, now that you're looking, you go up to an iris and you'll, you'll see some bees going, I think I'm, it's not a huge, it's not a great, great, great pollinator plant. Not like a crocus, like a crocus is like a great, um, or a hyacinth. Those are two really great bulbs that attract a lot of bees. Oh, I love both of those. And those come up early. It does bring me to uh, principle number two. Okay. So principle number two is that you do need, uh, it, the things got to bloom over time. And so things like crocuses are really good because they're going to come up real early and you're your first bumblebees, for example, or the honeybees, which are active all winter long, it just needs to get warm. They don't go to – honeybees are the only bees you'll see on a warm day in January because all the rest of the bees are asleep in some kind of dormancy. But first thing in the spring, you get these great big bumblebee queens. They're just massive, and they're real, They're trying to found a nest. Like they're on their own. There's no nest. She's on her own at that point. She's a mated queen. She's wintered in the ground. She's popped out, and she's really looking for any resources she can – and things like those early bulbs uh, can be really valuable because they're the them and things like the willows are the only things uh, around. And so the second principle is making sure that after that, you've got other flowers that come on and you've got flowers in midsummer and you've got drought tolerant plants that are, you know, you know, still blooming in August and you've got something in September. Having making sure your garden's planned so that you've got bloom continuously across the season is the second really important principle when it comes to, uh, you know, creating pollinator habitat in your garden. Hmm. I wonder if that's what it is, because Mike says that um, he said that the bees died like in November. So that's why we don't think that they start to death, because but maybe it's because we don't have enough flowers like in that late September, October November, oh, yeah. because we have an early frost. Not quite August 1st, but we have had frost August 7th before, I know. But usually our first frost is like the first week in September. And I don't, I'm not a, a real big butterfly person, but I think setting up for winter is really important. And so like for butterflies, for example, migratory monarchs in southern Oregon, for example, their last stop before they head to California it, uh, the last generations in southern Oregon. So making sure they have lots of nectar to nectar on to get that get them that strength because those those butterflies are going to have to spend the winter and then and then rear the first generation offspring they need a lot of energy and so uh, that last and also for honeybee colonies honeybee colonies good nutrition in August well, you know that's when the winter bees are being born those are the bees that are going to be you know the bees that are born in August and early September are going to be the ones that are going to take you through the winter because the colony doesn't make a lot of broods through the winter so having good uh, nectar and pollen resources late in the year helps are really important for a lot of a lot of species. It's a it, it's a big yeah. I think it's a you're, you're totally right. That's a important element for sure. Hmm. Okay. So, are we up to the third principle? Number three. So include yeah. You should include natives. Don't just go with exotic plants. So there's all sorts of non-native. There's some great you know dandelions is a great example of a plant that. You know, it's really good for pollinators and, um, you know, is not from here. But by and large, if, you, if you're not sure, you, you never go wrong with native plants. And I know sometimes native plants don't have the aesthetic for some gardens, so you can definitely mix them in. You figure out how to mix them in with some of your non-native plants. But native plants will, you know, have a greater odds of attracting bees. And there's lots of research around this. So, um, you know, 
out here we have some, you know, great, you know, some of our favorite plants are, are, you know, native plants. We have native buckwheats, great for butterflies, great for honeybees. We've got uh, some of the phacelias, the, um, uh, I guess they're called scorpion weed. The native phacelias are really great bee plants. Uh, we have a great study out here as well. People can look at on, I'll, I'll send it for, I'll send it to you after the show, but uh, where we evaluated some different plants and some things like gilia, for example, uh, beautiful, uh, you know, uh, deep blue flower, uh, native plant really attracted the broadest range of bees. But I also just, you know, at the same time, there's some great non-native plants, like a lot of your fruit trees are going to be great. Uh, don't, uh, our honeybees, I mean, not honeybees, but native bees aren't entirely specialists. They don't go to like one flower. They'll use a bunch of different flowers, but if you include some native plants uh, uh, in your garden, that's going to be a uh, one thing you should, as a key principle, principle number three. Cool. I just did an interview with this guy, Neil Dybul, who um, talked all about native plants that I haven't, I haven't released it yet. It's like, he was like my last interview before you. So, but just for listeners to know, we'll be, that'll be coming out soon. Okay. Fantastic. Well, the, so number four, if you do plant exotic plants, uh, so there's some good ones. Don't do double petaled ones. So double petal, you know, the, you know, these are the flowers. I, you know, you think about roses, for example. You've got, it's, there's a big difference between a wild rose and a um, a bread rose. You know, they've got all these different petals. Those different petals yeah. actually are done at the expense of the pollen in the plant, and it also makes it really hard for a bee to kind of get down to the nectaries. And so I I totally love those plants. Like they're really gorgeous and really beautiful. You should have them in your garden. But if you're really planting for pollinators, try to go to the single petal varieties. So the ones that don't have all the flowers in the middle, uh, they'll be they'll help. Awesome. I love wild roses. Uh, they're just so, I just think they're a little more delicate. We haven't really ever planted a rose bush here, but I have one, I have a wild rose bush right outside my bedroom. And then there's one like where I park my car and I just love when they smell good and good to know. Uh, roses are always on the cusp too. They're at a good uh, point of time. There's like, it's a transition between the early spring flowers and the late summer flowers. So wild roses, I think are really great. I obviously am in the horticulture department. I love bread roses. Like, you know, there's some great, crazy, uh, rose breeds out there and I, I wouldn't get rid of them, but, uh, I would definitely include some wild rose somewhere in your garden for sure. I, I just like, I'm so fascinated with people that like go to school and study, like, can I just ask really quick, like, how did you get into horticulture? Like, did you always know that you wanted to do that? Like, I'm also fascinated that there's even a department that has somebody in charge of landscaping. Oh, I know. It's great. Yeah, no, we've got Al, Al's amazing. Yeah, no. So, um, uh, I, I guess I didn't know that I wanted to be in horticulture. I'm a bee person. But I really love being in horticulture. Right two doors down from me is the turf specialist. And we talk a lot. Like Alec has, uh, knows a lot about how to like grow lawns with no, you know, with no fungicides and stuff or like uh, golf courses. And like we start talking a lot. I think, oh, bees depend on landscapes and golf courses are a big part of the landscape. Like in golf course superintendents are actually kind of interested in putting pollinator habitat in. You know, and then I've got Al a uh, door down. We have uh, Gail Langalata, who's our master gardener uh, coordinator, who's also like one of the world's experts on native bees. So being in a horticulture department is the best. Uh, I didn't know I wanted to be here, but I, everybody who manages land in interesting and cool ways is here. I feel like I'm with the cool kids now. <laughs> 
I love that. But like, so like, how did you get there then? Like, what were you studying in college? Like, how did you end up there? Okay. So I was a B guy. And what happened here? So this is how my job came about. It's the only one of its kind in the U.S. What happened was five years ago was National Pollinator Week. Um, a pesticide application. Well, there was a, it was a big box store and somebody applied an insecticide to these shade trees. And the next day there were dead bumblebees all over the pavement. It was an international story. It was really tragic. It was really awful. And so the state of Oregon uh, uh, struck a task force and they said, we got to get around this. The first thing they do is they restricted that pesticide. You can't use it on that tr those trees anymore. And then they built this comprehensive education program for pesticide applicators, for gardeners for land managers and we have this thing in Oregon it's called the Oregon Bee Project where we are out we talk to a lot of people we talk to foresters we talk to golf course superintendents we talk to mosquito control people we talk to gardeners we talk, talk to everybody and we've got programming for them I'm really kind of trying to uh, make Oregon like one of the bee friendly places in the world that's and so I'm that's what I do and I love it it's the best job ever <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing that. And just, I love it too. Um, I mean, it's good. It's good for everybody. So, well, kudos to Oregon. You're the only one in the whole United States. It's the only one with a position like this. And I think other states are seeing the success out here and they're looking to create these kinds of positions. Because usually what it is, is you've got a person who's either a native bee person who's an ecologist or something, or you have an apiculture extension person who works with the honeybees, but not one that sort of whose main purview is actually the people who manage land and sort of give it, giving them the tools to do things. That is really the only, uh, I'm, I feel like a unicorn. I'm the only one of my kind. <laughs> Excellent. Well, my listeners, like, like I call them green future growers because they're not just interested in their own garden. So maybe there's somebody out there listening. That's like, I'm going to find out about how I can get this going in my state. Oh, totally. And it was it was started that way. It was started by concerned citizens who are going out and, you know, uh, talking to their legislators and trying to figure out, you know, you know, where are the lo lowest hanging fruits and why, sh you know, states should get involved with doing this. And there's lots of don't get me wrong. There are lots of states that have great initiatives. A lot of times it's their Department of Agriculture or Natural Resources. Um, you know, we, we've had a couple people from Montana, like there's this great initiative, uh, 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 Montana State, where they're you know, characterizing all the bees of Montana, uh, Casey Delphia. Um, and so there's lots of stuff going on. Don't get me wrong, but this is the only position kind of dedicated to doing this one role. And I, I love this job. It's, it's amazing. Okay. Well, you're probably like super busy and I see that we're rolling up on an hour. So, and I still have a few questions I want to ask you. So, uh, what tip are we up to number four? Yeah. I'll do, I'll do the next ones quick. Okay. Well, I'm not in a hurry. I just don't okay. want, like, I know you, maybe you're busy. I actually have my first day off today, so this is a good day for me. Okay, so five, don't forget trees. Trees, you can't get more flowers per unit area than a tree. So something like a maple or, you know, a cherry tree or fruit tree, those are really good. Don't forget them. The sixth one is when you're planting Plant in big blocks. You want, uh, they like big box stores, the bees. They want a lot of flowers of the same type. So not just a plant here, a plant there. Do a big block of the same type of plant. That'll attract more bees. It's been shown to do that. 
when you do the seventh one is if you do have plants that are starting to fade, deadhead them. That'll extend the bloom. You'll get a lot more bloom per unit area if you start deadheading. And the last two, nine, uh, eight and nine are kind of related. Leave nesting habitat. We had this great episode with uh, Gail Lungolato who really said that gardeners overlook uh, the nesting. They plant all the flowers, right? You plant all the flowers for bees, but they don't create the nesting habitat. And so you can do this, for example, when you're pruning. If you've got stuff like sedum or some of the, you know, some of the, you know, black berry and cherry, uh, um, raspberry canes, prune them off about six inches and leave that old growth behind. You'll see that the bees will go in and they'll make their nests in there. They'll use them as tubes. Like, you know how you had an episode where you create those little blocks, those wooden blocks? Well, you can do that in your garden by just leaving some of the pithy stems there. Don't prune them all the way down. The bees will go back and they'll use those. They'll, cool. It, Remember, a lot of these bees are ground nesting, so mulch is your friend. If you're an organic gardener, mulch is the best kind of way of weed control. But leave some areas unmulched because they'll have ground nesting bees there. Don't mulch the planet. Just you know, mulch where you need to mulch, but leave some areas like a pathway. If you have like a rock pathway, the bees, even that pack down dirt, the bees will nest in there. Last thing, and I don't have to say this on this episode, you know, on this on this show, just you know, be very, very careful. Really don't use pesticides on any bee attractive blooming plant. If you do, um, there's an odds that you're going to cause some problems. So and I think the key to that is just when you start your you start your garden, don't plant plants that are going to be pest prone. That's the key thing is just like don't start with plants that are going to be causing problems down the road. Plan, talk to your master gardener clinic. There's plant clinics in every state and in some of the Canadian provinces. They'll give you advice. They'll tell you don't plant that thing. You're going to be battling X, Y, and Z with that for a long time. Plant this. And that's the first line of defense. Don't plant problem plants. There are your 10 lessons. <laughs> okay, I got to all right, I have one question about what about water? Do they don't they need a water source? They find water. I mean, there is, I, I get that asked ask that question a lot, and I think you know with honeybees. I think with honeybees you can get this happening, right? You've got a honeybee colony, and it's really hot, and honeybee colonies to cool down need water, and so what ends up happening is they go to your neighbor's pool. And then once they're going to your neighbor's pool, they don't want to stop going to your neighbor's pool. It's really hard. So getting water out when it gets really hot for a lot of insects is a way to cool things down. I would say that you know unless you're uh, – it doesn't take a lot of water and it's you – know, maybe I should include it in there. But I would say – yeah, I would agree. <laughs> i got to disagree with you. Yeah, have, some, have a little pool <laughs> of water with some pebbles in it. Well, we we don't have a lot of water at our house, so maybe it's a bigger issue here. We're in dry I, Montana. You're in moisture Oregon. It's like, like water. <laughs> can, can you get rid of it? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, water's definitely. And, like, Mike built, like, this little bee creek that's, like, all these rocks and the moss grows on it. And just is the coolest thing when we, like, run the hose so it will, like, um, so it has water, like, Eventually, there's going to be like a pond and a recycling system, so it just kind of goes with a pump. But for now, we just like put a hose and like drip water when we can. And the bees love that. And just a lot of people have always said like a water feature for bees, but especially for us because we don't like um, we just don't have a lot of water at my house. 
Well, I, I guess the last thing I would say there is I, 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 I kid. Oregon has lots of water. It gets dry here in August, and I think a lot of a lot of places in the U.S. we have water issues. And I think it it, it bears to say, like, uh, obviously there's a lot of plants that can grow in high moisture conditions. And this is another argument for a lot of native plants: is if you want to cut back on your water, there are some plants that are just water wise and I think choosing water wise plants is really responsible especially in areas where you know we're rationing waters and you know you don't need to use it in your garden there are some great plants that achieve the same thing and they're really beautiful and they're really adapted to uh, growing under dry conditions I totally agree and I wish Bill Maher would learn that lesson so do you want to, we need, like, you need to tell everybody about your podcast and what they can learn if they listen to your podcast and, and those kind of things. How often do you put your show out? Uh, every week. So and you're up to episode 94, right? Yeah, I'm getting close to 100. So yeah. What did, you, what did you do for your 100th episode? I went to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my episode 100 was with Bill um, McDormand from... Um, uh, the seed, it's not, is it Seed Savers Exchange? Is it, uh, or Seeds Trust? Um, he, he talked about freeing the seeds, but I did go to Paris to celebrate my first year. And I don't know, I might've been closer to like episode 125, but yeah, I did a hundred, hundred episodes and a hundred thousand downloads. It's impressive. It's a great, it's a great show too. I think, um, the, the range of, uh, the range of, um, topics that you cover and sort of the conversational attitude is a great way. I always, I always, you know, I ask people why they listen to podcasts and it's like, Oh, cause I'm doing my dishes or I'm out gardening or I'm, I got a three hour drive. And so I think, um, uh, you do a great job of, uh, really kind of, um, uh, knowing that people are not, uh, you know, want a conversation. They want to hear somebody talking. They don't want a, um, a lecture or something. And I think that's awesome. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because the number one criticism I get is shut up, Jackie, and let your guests talk. <laughs> I had, yeah, I, the funniest, so one funniest one I had was I had somebody uh, write in. They're probably listening right now. I thought it was funny. I'm so sorry. I, I totally took it seriously. I am trying to mediate it. But somebody said, you laugh way too much. And it's just like, it's no way. <laughs> you just like, you just mute the microphone when you laugh. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awful why would somebody say that that's like one of those trolls no, I, I think out there you know, i took it seriously i was like oh this guy's like I, I can imagine he's like really invested and he's learning i could see i could see him at home just like taking notes and it's like ah he laughed again in my head and i do i do actually have a hearty laugh and i you know i find most things pretty funny <laughs> i love your laugh i think it's great uh, I do mute my mic though anymore because it does keep me a little more less likely to interrupt. Um, and then I just turn it back on if I want to, if I want to say something. I've had, I've had way more listeners who said they just like the conversation. They like, they, they like the back and forth. They like, you know, um, the interaction between the, uh, host and the guest. So I'm, I, I like your show for that. I think it's uh, really good in that way. Well, thanks. And thanks for listening. But so tell listeners about your podcast and like what they'll learn and like what kind of guests you have on and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, we're we're really interested. I was really interested. Uh, there's so much going on in the pollinator world right now. It's hard to keep track. So I started the show. I said, even if no one listens to it, I just want to figure out what's. I want to get my coordinates, and so I just started talking to as many people as I could. And I really wanted not just to have researchers on there because they're great. There's lots of great research going on, but I knew there were people on the ground pulling things off. So, for example, one episode I really love is we had the city manager for the city of Fife in, you know, Washington, um, in Washington, just outside of Seattle. And he was like for years uh, battling clover on uh, um, city lands. And then he just kind of like one day heard something. It's like, oh, the clover's good for bees. And now he's he's like a single single handedly. You know, he's got a logo for Fife. It's got the clover and the bee that his daughter did. And. He's doing all these great experiments with putting large patches of clover on uh, City of Fife property. I thought that's a great story. And I just the way that he had to, you know, just the story for how he got there and like and then his experiments were fascinating to me. And I'm running into so many people who just kind of, uh, you know, we had the, we had somebody from uh, Pro Time Seed, um, you know, they do those ecolons and just hearing about, oh, this is a this, this took a bunch of years to develop. Um, hearing about some of the requirements for setting up an ecolon. I don't know. I'm most mostly interested in hearing about people who have kind of stuck their neck out a little bit and tried something and learned something from it. And sometimes those lessons are not, you know, um, weren't astounding successes. But I think my, I think the listeners of our show are people who are trying these things out for themselves. They're looking for tips and skills. They want to know how to solve these things. And who better to talk to than the people who've tried it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh what are some of your favorite podcasts to listen to? Oh, it's funny. I'm a funny guy. So like I, you know, I like bees and stuff, but then I also, you know, I listen to all sorts of other things. So I listen to uh I I'm I'm a Canadian in uh I'm a Canadian in uh the US, so I listen to all the CBC podcasts, the, the debaters <laughs> There's a, a funny podcast where they get these two. I, we should pitch a B idea to them. They get these two people who are going to, you know, the one they had was like the Toronto Maple Leafs are, are they the worst or the best team in the NHL. And they sort of like go back and forth. And I just love, I guess the thing is, I always listen to different podcasts just to see how people do things. And I think, you know, what, why am I drawn to a certain podcast? What, how is it, you know, what, what, exa how exactly are they putting the information across? Because I do think podcasts are a great way. Um, to hear different things, things that you wouldn't hear normally. And, uh, you know, um, uh, and it's also allows you to experiment a little bit with, you know, you don't have the pressures of um, running a big mag. You know, we were talking about the gar uh, gardening magazines earlier. And, you know, we had an episode with a guy who does all the beekeeping magazines. And it's a big job. You know, you're to take a risk, uh, you know, really requires, you know, some financial investment. Whereas with these podcasts, I think we can try different things out and, uh, explore different guests in a way that, uh, you know, we don't have that constraint. I think it opens things up. I think people can really find what are your, by the way, what are your favorite podcasts? Uh, well, I agree. Like I listen to such a variety of podcasts. I mean, I don't know why at this point in my life, I'm totally addicted to business podcasts. So like, well, I started with like Michael Hyatt. I was taking this leadership class. And so I started, that's how I even got into podcasting was we had to like listen to Michael Hyatt's, um, we had to find a leadership podcast and that was who I found. His used to be, this is your life. I don't really listen to it any, as much anymore, but he's like big on leadership and productivity. 
Although I did just hear him on Amy Porterfield, which is another one I listen to who teaches you about how to create an online course. Um, but then I listen to like, I love cereal. I think I've listened to cereal like 10 times. I don't know why. Uh, I listen to, um, I don't know, just a huge variety of everything from like international, like environmental law, like from the UN wow. and like, <laughs> they have one like on the declaration of human rights to, you know, cooking with like, um, what's this one? It's about vegan cooking and like the, the hoop house, which is about like, um, you know, animal rights and, I don't know. I I was I drive a lot. I haven't really been listening to very many lately, but I spend a lot of time. Like I said, I cross the continental divide four hundred times. I used to drive, you know, three hours every weekend each way to work. Um, so I listened to a lot there. My husband and I delivered the papers. That was eight hours, six thousand miles a month in a car. Um, Lewis Howes. I was a big Lewis Howes fan for a really long time. Uh, today I was listening to Tony Robbins. Um, talking about uh what is it the number one equalizer is time uh i don't know just a variety of podcasts well i hear here's i'll say two things I, I should also give some podcasts that are you know related to bees and i would say two that i really like there's one out of portland called uh beekeeper confidential uh mandy shaw with the portland urban beekeepers puts it out and what i really love about that episode is mandy's got a quirky way of putting the podcast together uh, and they're really well produced. It isn't, they don't come out like real frequently because they're um, way better produced than my my show. Um, but they're really well thought out. I think she uh, uh, thinks carefully. She had one with like, uh, you know, New York City has like a, uh, a police person. Uh, there's a staff member who's uh, uh, in charge of the bees. And so she finds like really interesting guests, which I think is cool when it comes to bee stuff. And the other one, the main keeping main beekeeping Mainstream beekeeping show that I like is uh, uh, Ki- uh, Kiwi Mana, as uh, Buzz Beekeeping podcast. It's really it's in New Zealand, and but they're real uh, hardcore beekeepers, and I um, it's just really kind of a fascinating show. Oh, the last one I would say is we did do an episode with Bee Culture has its own uh, podcast, and that's a great show. Like I think Bee Culture uh, Kim Flottam does a lot of good work. Um, so all of them, I think, are, you know, I like them. Um, I think they're uh, good podcasts, and uh, I, I'd listen to them. If, especially if you're uh, – those are all kind of honeybee shows, and I think, oh, they're all real good that way. Like if you want to, like, go down the rabbit hole of beekeeping, <laughs> I, don't, I don't recommend everybody. <laughs> oh, I got that across. <laughs> well. Anything else that we haven't covered today? Do you want to, like, I'm, I still want to ask you my final question, but, like, what about, like, do you have, like, any books or anything that you really recommend listeners check out or, like, an Intercept resource? Yeah, let's, yeah, we should do each other's. So, okay, my, um, for gardeners, okay, if you're in California, I'm going to recommend a couple books. So, I've always asked, I've got, like, people recommend books all the time on my show, and I've got... You know, the top book would be Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes Society has this great book on uh, uh, sort of gardening for beneficial insects uh, and uh, working with beneficial insects. It's a really great book. 
I'll have to get the title to you. Maybe I'll type it in as we're working here. But it's the most requested uh, book on our show. It's and it is really well done. I have to admit it is. Um, and if you don't know the Xerxes Society out of Portland, they do. Um, they do, it's a invertebrate, it's the National Invertebrate Conservation, um, there it is, that, that's the book. It, National uh, Invertebrate Conservation Organization, they have a lot of great initiatives. But they, it's called Farming with Native Beneficial Insects. And I think for your listeners, if they don't know that book, they, you know, it's the most requested book on our show. I would totally recommend it. Uh, so the Xerxes Society, Farming with Native Beneficial Insects. But the other book that I really love when it comes to gardening, it's not recommended, but nobody's ever recommended it on my show. I don't know why. It's called California Bees and Blooms, a Guide for Gardeners and Naturalists. It's by Gordon Frankie, and it really is a comprehensive book. It's really well written, and there's so many good bee books, but I would, if you're into gardening and you want to sort of like really pull this off, I think that's a really uh, overlooked book. It's really well put together, and it's based on a lot of data that they've collected in Northern California. What are yours? Awesome. My favorite books? Well, I'm a big fan of Lynn Bazinski's um, The Flower Farmer, because like, I dream about being a flower farmer, and I grow a lot of sunflowers every year. That's kind of my thing in the garden, are flowers. Uh, I definitely love Jean Martin Fortier's The Market Gardener. I feel like Mike and I got a lot out of that. Um I don't know. I like, I I kind of like like some novels. Like I loved Anastasia Kolpakis's The um, Farm on the Roof about the Brooklyn Grange in New York, which is a lot as much about entrepreneurship as it is about gardening. Uh-huh. And then like Liz Carlisle wrote The Lentil Underground, which is about entrepreneurs and farmers in Montana. There's a book called The Lentil Underground. <laughs> yeah. Liz Carlisle, she's like a, a professor down at Stanford and she she used to be like a country singer and she was like, I don't know, decided to like write a book about the stories of the people that she met. And um, and she also went to work for like Senator John Tester in Washington, D.C. I don't know. And then she when she went to Stanford to get her Ph.D., she was like this was her thesis was like, if we know these are best practices, why aren't we following them? And kind of dug into the research of like if we know cover crops are really good why isn't everybody using cover crops and how to answer that question and talk to people um because there's some really successful farmers growing lentils um doing dry farming because irrigation on the east side is a little more difficult um and just like this guy david Oren and some other people and like how they came up with lentils as a cover crop but also as a profitable crop and uh yeah it's called the lentil ever underground Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Those are great books. And um, she also just wrote, like, co-authored this book, Green by Green, with Bill, um, with Bob Quinn, uh, which is also about um, growing food organically and the profitability of um, growing for, he also, he's one of the farmers featured in the Lentil Underground. Okay. Oh, cool. Wow. And he's also very big on like native, like native fruits. Like he grows 27 different kinds of fruit in Northwest Montana. And he talked a lot, like I haven't released my interview. I just did with him about the book, but he talked about, um, and you know, I do need to mention one more is Andrew Mefford just wrote a book called the no-till farmer. Uh, I also haven't released his book, but that was a really good one uh, because there's so many people talking about no-till 
like gardening on a small scale, but Andrew actually goes and interviews these 17 people who are doing it on a much bigger scale. You know, and I'll just say no-till is great for bees too, because remember all those bees are like squash bees, for example, they're nesting in the squash beds. And so as soon as you till it up, you're going to you know, disturb those nest beds. So no-till has lots of benefits, not only just moisture retention and building up the bacteria in the soil. It's just a good practice. Totally. Yeah. Uh, did you have a question for me that I missed? Yeah. So the, what I thought oh. I would do, so we could do another podcast, but one thought I had is um, uh, we could just start the episode talking about your podcast and we could just put that in and just run the whole thing like that. Okay. Are you ready for my final question though, before we go there? Yeah, totally. Okay. So it's kind of a doozy. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Oh, that's a tough question. Oops. Here, let me hit, let me turn the phone off. Oh, I didn't even hear it. <sighs> okay. I, I, so it is a doozy question. It is a doozy question. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, I could say, well, you know, we, we do have things that we're doing here in Oregon that I'd love to plug, but um, I'm not going to. I, I do think, maybe I will in a kind of roundabout way, but I'm not doing it for, uh, I, I feel strongly about it. I do think the one of the problems is, when it comes to pollinators, is that things um, there was a moment where I think there was an opportunity to sort of uh, create some bridges uh, to help bees. It's going to uh, it's going to ha it's going to have to involve a lot of land being uh, managed in a, a specific way, which gets all kind of bound up with like farm income, you know, uh, all the kind of problems that are already there in land management that, you know, bees come on board. And so, you know, when I first got here, there were a lot of land managers who were just not that enthusiastic about bees because they saw it as causing restrictions and causing problems. And it was hard to talk to them. And really, they're the people managing the land and they're really smart and they know what they're doing on the land. They, you know, they, their businesses are surviving. Um, and so somehow you need to make a bridge between the, you know, um, and the other part of it is we just, there's a lot of uncertainty. Like I can't really, you know, when we are talking about gardens, I can't really give you, give you some rough ideas of what a garden ought to be, but you know, there's a lot that we still need to know about bees. And so how do you go forward with land managers who are skeptical that you're going to wreck their businesses? Uh, a lot of uncertainty around certain practices that help bees and, you know, people are really passionate. I like to see those things come together. And I think there's a way to do that. Like, I think, you know, I, I one of the stunning moments I had was being out in like uh, eastern Washington at a potato growing meeting where the growers didn't need bees for pollination and they were a little suspicious that, you know, we were environmentalists or something. And when we brought a, 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 a bunch of bees from uh, various places uh, in the state and they saw them, we got their attention. They were really excited at the diversity of colors and shapes of the bees. They remember seeing these bees in their childhood. And I just thought, well, there is an appeal that can be made. Like we could actually get people on board 
uh, without kind of going after them. And uh, the start of it may be something along the lines of, this is an endowment that we have in the U.S. We've got some remarkable bees right across the U.S. You have them there in Montana. They're up in Canada. And they are a lot of them do pollination and they're really uh, helpful for food production. A lot of them maybe aren't. But aren't they amazing? Like, can we all get behind that, that they're amazing? And maybe some modest kind of give and take, we can really improve things. I think that's my big vision is like opening up dialogue, trying to find the you know, don't make assumptions about what people think and figure out like what they can do. Because um, if my job here has shown me anything is like, I'm always being surprised by people. Oh, I love that because I love getting along with people and trying to like build that conversation. And maybe it's a little scary sometimes to go out there and talk to different people. And so uh, I think that's encouraging to people that, Maybe there will be that people keep an open mind. We can make a difference. I agree. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Okay. Do you want to tell listeners how to connect with you on your show and how to find your podcast? Yeah, it's Pollination. Uh, uh, just anywhere you go, we've got a website. Uh, the other thing that you may want to check out, we have this, uh, uh, I think, uh, this blanket, blanket initiative here in Oregon, the Oregon Bee Project. Come check the website out. We've got lots of tools and resources for people on pollinators. And if you, uh, uh, I can also send you a little sheet with the five Bs and the ten tips. If you, uh, if people wanna, I can send you a link to that, and people can. I've got a, a sheet that just explains everything we talked about in the podcast. Awesome. Well, I know they'll love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Now, did you? You, you want to talk about my podcast now? Yeah. So I thought what we could do is, uh, well, I'll go through and edit this, but we could just uh, start it off by just uh, introducing you in the podcast, what motivated you to kind of come up with the podcast, something about your listeners and some of the shows you have on bees. Okay. All right. Okay. T so tell us a, a little bit about the podcast. Uh, how did you, it's, uh, you've, you've been going for a long time. You got a huge listenership. Uh, uh, what caused you to start it? And what's its focus? Uh, well, it's kind of a funny story. So I always was listening to Entrepreneur on Fire with John Lee Dumas. And I thought I was going to webinar on fire because on my show, my listeners know my husband's really more the gardener and I'm kind of the organic eater. And I thought, I didn't think anybody would listen to a garden podcast. So I was like, I thought we would do, he would teach people how to, um, you know, garden using webinars and like a YouTube channel. And I don't know, I ended up on the wrong webinar and I was like, well, whatever, I'll just try it. There's a 30 day money back. And I just fell in love with podcasting and just, I love my audience. I love my guests. It's just amazing. The connections I've made and the big theme on my show, I call my listeners green future growers because we're all very committed to not just creating an organic garden, but like eater. Say it one more time. An organic eater. I like to eat the organic food. <laughs> and organic food is super expensive. And just fruit and produce. And, like, I really struggle to get myself to eat fruit at all. And, like, the fruit I like are generally berries. And I go through, like, the problem with, like, I can stand in the produce aisle. I swear, I kid you not, like, for 10 minutes going, I should buy the strawberries. No, I shouldn't buy the strawberries. They're covered in chemical. Like, my husband's always, like, when I bring strawberries home, he's like, oh, eating some pesticides today? And just, and then there's also the plastic container thing, especially in Montana. We have very like limited recycling when China stopped taking our recycling, like they quit recycling plastic here altogether where I live. And it's already very difficult. 
And so I like go back and forth through that. So this year, my goal has been actually to plant blueberries and raspberries so we have more fruit. And then in 2020, I'm going to focus on strawberries because one of the things you mentioned on my show that I thought was great advice is like start small. I talk to my listeners a lot about don't, if you're, especially if you're very starting out, start small and make it convenient, like close to your kitchen door. I always talk about my compost pile that Mike built me for our 14th wedding anniversary because it's right outside my kitchen door and I can just throw the fruit scraps out there while I'm cooking. Um, I talk a lot about green, clean jobs too. Like I don't necessarily like to get dirty in the garden unless it's like a garden day. When I get home from work, I don't want to go down there to pick my tomatoes and get my feet all dirty. But I do think composting is a clean garden job. I generally have a lot to do with the composting because I don't get dirty doing composting and it's easy. It's very forgiving. Another struggle I have is like watering my flowers and watering things. Like there'll be days in the summer where I won't even see the garden for five days. So I think, um, so that's why like watering, planting things that are like native plants, like you talk about, like I like to do flowers because if they're native flowers, a lot of times they'll just survive with rainwater and I don't have to worry about watering them. And I interviewed, um, David Schmetterling down in Missoula, Montana near here one day. And he talked about in their garden, he has this beautiful garden. Like when you look at the pictures, you'll never believe he's in the middle of Missoula, you know, a 70,000 person city and they don't use any irrigation in their yard. The only irrigation they do all summer is like for their peppers or like they grow some specialty vegetables because they have really good access to the farmer's market and healthy food stores. Um, and so that was a big lesson I learned from Shem is that native plants won't require watering. And my husband's like laughing at me cause I'm like going around, I'm like, I want to start planting native plants. And like, we live in the forest, we have 20 acres of woods. And like, he's gone from like getting rid of the native plants, like right near our house to build like for like fire, you know, like we have a lot of grass to keep like the fire danger down. And he's like, all you have to do is step outside the fence and you'll see like, you know, native juniper bushes and like, Knick-knick and things like that there. Anyway, did I go off topic here? No, that's perfect. That's exactly. So <laughs> I, I get – I think that's really right. And I think, you know, for me, the it, uh, starting a podcast had the similar kind of thing. Is I just knew there was a lot of information out there, and I wanted to kind of bring it together somehow. Like I just wanted to kind of be on uh, on top of it. And so I totally get that. Um, um, and I just wanted to know a little bit more. So you've also had a lot of shows – uh, on pollinators specifically. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of those episodes. So one of my favorites was Jacqueline Freeman, who talks about treatment-free bees in, um, she's in Washington state. And I want to say her book's called A Song of Increase. And she talks about a lot of things like you said about like, just she'll just sit and watch and kind of listen to the bees and get to know the bees and just taking care of the bees. And she her episode is just a great one about um, learning how to do it without like having to spray anything or having to use like how to get bees that are strong colonies that aren't going to be affected by mites. Um, because that seems to be a big, um, you know, conversation or like how to deal with mites that a lot of beekeepers on my show have talked about different ways to, um, deal with that. But I loved her because she was just really in a treatment free. And she talks about when you, what's that white stuff that people dust with? She's like, it's like setting off an explosion in someone's living room. And it just may seem like it's not a big deal, but she just really talks about ways you can really, um, get a healthy colony going naturally. Oh, cool. 
and it is a tricky thing. Those, those uh, mites are. You always talk to beekeepers who were remember before the mid '80s, not having mites. It was a different world. It was um, so much easier. And then I also talked to Olivia um, Shangro, like we talked a little bit about, who taught, who is um, has a business or like the. I don't know, the communication person or called rent Mason bees. And she, what I loved about her is they talked about like the way to increase the success rate is they actually give the bees like a bath at the end of the year. And you like, they, you rent them from her and she'll, they'll like send you a tube and you can get these, um, Mason bees to, um, thrive in your yard, but then you send it back at the end of the year and some of them will stay in your garden and you'll send some back and then they can keep, um, like, you know, helping more native bees grow around the United States. And she's just an amazing, um, person that I talked to just really passionate about, um, taking care of the bees. Like she was just like another one. I was like, well, tell me your story. How did you get this job? And like, you know, what did you go to school for? And just, I, I love learning. I love writing biographies and like learning about people's lives. And so that's part of why I enjoy podcasting so much. And she, I, I think she's, those guys have really got it down too. It's, it's great because, you know, some, for some people, I think you were talking in your first episode, it's kind of complicated to keep honeybees and they've kind of taken a lot of that out of the way. They're really good at what they do. Um, uh, and they really know they're mason bees. They're just real experts at it. I th- that was a great episode just in terms of just like laying out some of the basics of this. This is not um, something everybody could do. Having mason bees, sometimes having honeybees in your backyard might be not the right fit. But I can't think of any real situations where mason bees wouldn't fit. And then I also like one of my listeners and like I love when my listeners come on and share their story and they make some great guests was this woman, Kara Bellamy, and she's down in Florida and she started a thing called the Sustainability Project. And so she collects like compost from her neighbors and then they can either if they want the compost back or if they just want to like donate their like, you know, food scraps and things to her compost pile so she can grow more plants and bring more bees into their community. Um, she was another person I talked to. And then from glory Bee, I talked to Shandy Carroll, who's down in Eugene and they talked about like bee friendly practices and things you can do in your garden to encourage the bees. Yeah, they're great. Uh, glory Bee is a real supporter. I think they've got a, a, a program where I think, you know, a, a, um, a percentage of their sales goes uh, directly into research and uh, education. So they're, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you, you were able to reach out to them. They're so great. And then I, I just feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Patty Armbruster, who didn't necessarily 100% talk about just bees, but she like practically has her own fan club or she just basically have her own fan club on my show because she just talks about like sustainable agriculture and growing sunflowers to help your garden, you know, not just to bring in the pollinators, but also for like aphid control and to get along with the ants. And she just talks about regenerative agriculture and she's just this amazing teacher. She runs like the agriculture um, department. I want to say she's middle school and high school. Um, She's like an FFA person and just, she's just this wealth of knowledge who's been on my show a few times. And I met her because of my podcast. Like I never would have met her. Like to me, the coolest thing about my podcast is that like I've met people that live a mile through the woods from me or, you know, over in Australia, there's people in my (laughs) Facebook group from Kenya and Russia and just like 
all these crazy places and it's just so fun to get to meet people from around the world that all are as passionate about protecting our planet as I am. And so this was kind of one of the big, I mean, definitely the key to my show has definitely been soil health. I mean, ultimately everybody talks about, um, your garden really depends on your soil health and how having a healthy soil is going to create a healthy ecosystem, whether you want to grow food or you just want to grow a landscape or, you know, it's all kind of interrelated and, I don't know. That's kind of just been the kind of, uh, like I said, the theme of my show. I, I think that's real. I think that's really great. I think that's, uh, you know, a key, uh, a key thing is like be, all these, it, I sometimes worry about this. It's like, I think about one element, the pollinators, but really it's part of this interconnected, um, system. All of these parts have to work. The beneficial insects have to be, you know, keeping the pests down. Cause if the pests go up, the bees get in trouble. It's like all of these things are really, uh, really part of a whole. Yeah. And, um, you know, bringing in beneficial insects, like the same, a lot of the same principles that apply for bees apply to, um, bringing in beneficial insects, which also like reduce your pests, which is like a big question I get is how to deal with pests organically. And so, or also like the number one question I got last year is what do I put on my earth friendly lawn? What do I put on my organic lawn? And I talked to AJ Olson, who has a um, landscaping business down in Texas. And like one of the cool things he mentioned, he's like, well, if you get that question, just tell them to get a bottle of molasses, mix it with like um, a gallon of water, I think, or half a gallon of water and spray that on your lawn. And that will just make your soil thrive and make your plants thrive. And he's like, just... And so that was a great, like, he makes a fancy mixture that's got, like, molasses and seaweed and I don't know what else in it. But he's like, just for starters, that's a great way. Because people are like, yeah, but what do I buy when I'm at the store? And so that's a good solution. I was glad I could finally have something to tell listeners. I guess, I, you know, the last question I have for you is uh, you talked about people. What are some, of, if you were to say, like, what are some of people's key can, key questions or concerns about uh, pollinators? What would you sort of rank? I know you... You get a lot of questions about honeybees and keeping honeybees. There seems to be a lot of interest in that and how to do it without treating. Is there any other uh, kind of like you, you kind of comes up over, you know, a few hundred episodes that you uh, can identify? Uh, yeah. I'm thinking that I have a list right here. I think the three biggest questions I get for sure are like, how how to get things to be more productive, how to get like you know more vegetables out of our garden. Uh the number one page that has been looked at on my show on my website according to Google Analytics is the page is a blog post I wrote about the 10 most productive crops to grow in Montana. Uh -huh. Um so I guess people seem to be really interested in that. Uh but I did send out a survey the pollination, the pollination thing is uh people want to to get their crop productive and uh, um that's a there that's one of the big how do you do it how oh, no that's not a question for you sorry I'll, I'll cut that out but uh it was more like uh, a big question so the 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 premier concern they have is like uh the big one is like how do you pollinate the crop that uh or how do you pollinate plants to get more out of them yeah well, how to like how to get more pollinated? Like a lot of the things you talked about today, like what flowers, bringing in those different types of flowers, like that's what they want to know. How, like how to attract pollinators so that their vegetables will produce more 
and they're, you know, they'll get more fruit on their trees or they'll get more, you know, squash out of their squash plant if that's what they need or more eggplant. Like Mike really struggled when we first started gardening to get his eggplants would get these beautiful purple flowers and the plants would get so big, but then he wouldn't actually get the fruit. And so, you know, figuring out that solution. Okay. Are those but kind of solutions? I cut you off uh, abruptly when you were going to say, oh, and we did a survey. Tell me about this, uh, what your survey findings were. Oh, yeah. But I can't seem to find it. But I remember the three biggest things were like, um, how to attract beneficial insects and reduce pets. How to use cover crops, compost, and manure to improve your soil, house, soil health. And how to grow 20% more with the same amount of labor. Those were the three that came up the most. Like I gave them a list of like 10 things to pick and those were the top three. Yeah. Yeah. Those, and all of those I think would be, you know, those are key issues for uh, anybody who wants to manage pollinators, but it has, as just, it has much broader implications as well, obviously, but it's like, yeah, you can get more production out of certain plants with just good pollination and soil health. Uh, is, you know, at the same time, there are bees living in that soil. So good soil health is uh, important for uh, bee health as well. And uh, just the the pest management as well, I think, Uh, keeping plants healthy without having impacts on pollinators. So sounds like we got uh, uh, similar concerns. I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Your listeners' questions are uh, our listeners' questions. So well, that's why I thought you'd be a good guest on my show and I'd be a good guest on your show. I agree. And so, um, so, uh, uh your podcast runs, I can't remember. Is it how, how frequently do you run the podcasts? I try to put out an interview, a new interview every Monday morning. And then I was running a replay on Thursdays for a long time, but I kind of like, I just been so busy. I haven't even been able to do that. Like, even though it only takes like five minutes, there's just been five minutes I haven't had to do. So definitely every Monday, because I actually get picked up on Progressive Radio Network on Monday nights, and that's been huge for me, um, having to have that show to him by Monday, <laughs> once a week. It's really helped me keep on schedule and putting out new content. So so pretty much ever consistently, almost every Monday for the last four years, I've put out a new episode. And people can find you on iTunes and... Yep and all those things yep and our website is just the it's just organicgardenerpodcast.com fantastic okay i will uh cut this and dice this up into uh an episode and you take uh what you got there and away we go okay and (laughs) i might try to release this fairly raw with very little editing right away because i feel like this is very applicable to earth week and um, it's nice to always have a bonus episode out for Earth Week and just I feel like what you said was so valuable and it's technically I have 17 your episode 18 in the bank so it really wouldn't come out till almost July but I might try to get this out sooner no problem anytime I'm glad to thanks for reaching out and I really appreciate it and oh, thanks and it's probably went way longer than you thought it was I wasn't expecting you to interview me today so sorry if I wasn't like on my game but um I'm totally fine Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook, helping you create an earth-friendly environment today. Available on Amazon for just $26.95. It's full of all the lessons from Free Organic Garden Course that Mike and I have put together to help you grow your very own organic oasis. Um, Whether you just want a landscape or some deep beds, uh, it's a perfect book. Um, It's got all the worksheets and everything to help you be successful and have a lovely organic oasis that you want to live in too.
Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.